Welcome to all of you to the LSC. Uh, my name is uh, Fawaz Jajas, and I am a professor in Middle Eastern politics and international relations at the London School of Economics. And I'm really delighted uh, to have my colleague and my friend, uh, Professor Madawiya Rashid, uh, speaking today here. Uh, she'll be speaking about the uh, Saudi Arabia uh, and the Arab awakenings uh, and whether. Uh, Saudi Arabia is immune uh, to what has happened in the Arab world in the last uh, 10 months uh, or so. Uh, <coughs> Professor Madawi, and I'm really not exaggerating, is one of the leading scholars uh, on Saudi Arabia and the Gulf. Uh, and I think uh, leading in the sense of a critical voice as opposed to being a conventional voice like some of us. Uh, she focuses on three areas of interests, uh, in particular uh, history and politics and culture in Saudi Arabia and the Gulf, uh, broadly speaking, uh, the formation of the modern state uh, in Saudi Arabia and the Gulf, uh, social and economic development, and the transformation of religious thought uh, in Saudi Arabia and the Gulf. Uh, and Professor Madawi, she's not just an academic writer, she's also a prolific writer and a major uh, voice involved in the debates in Saudi Arabia uh, and the Arab uh, world as well. She has, I think, a weekly, a weekly column at uh, Al Quds al Arabi, uh, one of the leading uh, contrarian newspapers uh, in London. Uh, if you have the time, and I, I hope you do, uh, two books in particular uh, uh, Professor Madawi has published in the last seven years are really uh, resonate deeply among a huge crowd of scholars and students. Uh, a History of Saudi Arabia, uh, second edition, 2002, published by Cambridge University Press, and my favorite, Contesting the Saudi State, uh, published by Cambridge in 2007. Uh, so please join me in welcoming uh, Madawi Arashi to the London School of Economics. Thank you, Fawaz, for your generous uh, uh, welcome. Um, I'm honored to be asked by the Middle East Center uh, of LSE to uh, address this distinguished uh, audience. Uh, I'm glad also to see uh, familiar faces and uh, new ones who are uh, ho hopefully who will uh, benefit from uh, the debate uh, of today. Um, to just give you a background, um, I was on a research fellowship um, to work on uh, a book, as one does, um, and uh, this book was, uh, on, was going to be on uh, women in Saudi Arabia and their recent mobilization. And the title of that research project is A Most Masculine State, Gender, Religion, and Politics. I was happy conducting my research and writing up to January 2011 when the Arab world uh, uh, was beginning to be transformed probably forever. Uh, it is an ongoing uh, process that we uh, uh, are studying and following, but it is a distraction. And I think Arabs should calm down a bit so that people like us could have time to digest the, the data, <laughs> not to mention some of the policymakers who have to deal with a changing situation uh, day by day. But today, uh, I promised uh, Fawaz that I will not talk about anything but the Arab Spring. And the title of my talk is A Saudi Spring of Sandstorms, Signs of Domestic Turbulence. Um, 
those of us who know the Arab world know that Egypt welcomes uh, springtime with Shem al Nasim, a festival of blossoms. And we also know about uh, the, uh, uh, the Tunisian jasmines. But in the Arabian Peninsula, I think uh, that spring comes with sandstorms, as those of you who have lived in the region know very well. Uh, these sandstorms are turbulent, but they may not be as turbulent as the ones that have swept uh, North Africa. Now, what I'm going to focus on today is um, there are two aspects to my talk. The first one is to look at the signs of turbulence uh, by looking at society and what society has been doing as a result of the Arab Spring. <coughs> Regardless of what the Saudi regime or other regimes say that we are not Egypt, we're not Tunisia, we're not, we've heard that, uh, we find that the region had historically witnessed a kind of interconnection that nobody could stop. Uh, and those of us who have a historical memory remember how in the 20th century, from the Palestinian-Israeli conflict to Nasser, to the Ba'athist, Saudi Arabia and the Arabian Peninsula had always engaged with these Arab trends. And so I will focus first on what is going on <coughs> at the level of society. Second, I will look at how the state has been dealing with the turbulence that I, I will describe to you. Uh, mainly, I will focus on regime strategies to contain the uh, domino effect of the Arab Spring. Then I will move on to talk about Saudi Arabia in the context of uh, international and regional politics which brings me to the relationship between what goes on at the local level in Saudi Arabia and international trends, uh, mainly focus on Western reception of what goes on in Saudi Arabia, and also talk about the region and the regional players in it. Mainly, I will focus on Saudi Arabia as one of three powers that are working at the level of the region to shape the outcome of the Arab Spring, and that is Saudi Arabia, Turkey, and Iran. And hopefully, we will draw some, I will draw some conclusions. Let me look at the signs of domestic turbulence. When um, uh, the regime of Mubarak fell in Egypt, uh, an old friend, an old political activist, a Saudi, who had been around for a very long time, he is not a stranger in prisons in Saudi Arabia. He's been in and out of prison for a very long period of time. <coughs> he called me and said to me, the Egyptian revolution put the Saudis 10 years forward. <laughs> he meant, obviously, that we have advanced 10 years, but it's not going to happen now. And I think he was right. He was um, very close to various political trends in Saudi Arabia uh, before Islamism in the 1970s, and he knows what he is talking about. And I think, yes, Saudi Arabia, uh, or society in Saudi Arabia, uh, was pushed 10 years ahead of its own development as a result of the Arab Spring. As uh, immediately after Mubarak, the Mubarak regime fell, <coughs> two petitions circulated in Saudi Arabia. One of them was called the Declaration of uh, National Reform, and the other one was called Towards a State of Institutions and Rights. 
writing petitions as a way of uh, uh, um, asking for political rights is not new in Saudi Arabia. Saudis have been using the petition method for decades. And in the last 10 years, at least 10 petitions circulated. These petitions um, are usually signed by groups of people uh, either belonging to one uh, ideological camp or a cross-section of people belonging to different camps. They would uh, formulate these petitions, they would send them, fax them to the king, to the uh, minister of interior and to other relevant princes, and in a way uh, they would start gathering supporters. What, uh, this, what astonished me in the last two petitions I mentioned was the language of these petitions and the uh, raising of political aspirations and demands. Mm -hmm. The two petitions, um, I could see them uh, as an attempt to sideline one important figure in the Saudi royal family, and that is the Minister of Interior, Nair. Mo all the language in these two petitions was actually forecasting doom if Naif became the future king. And today the king himself is in, in hospital undergoing surgery. And uh, the second, the crown prince, is also in hospital. And um, they, he has almost disappeared from the Saudi public sphere. And that is crown prince sultan. And it is anticipated that Naif would become the future king of Saudi Arabia. And it seems to me that this uh, tr political trend that is uh, sometimes referred to as the constitutional monarchy movement uh, is beginning to draw people from different ideological and political persuasions. Uh, the last two petitions were signed by people uh, who are known Islamists, the others who are known liber as liberal, although there are big question marks about the word uh, liberal in the Saudi context. What they asked for is a state of institutions. They praised the king and his uh, will to reform, but they denounced the, uh, 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 the Minister of Interior. In a way, I think this political trend is growing, but in a way, uh, um, some of <coughs> the advocates of this kind of uh, change towards a constitutional monarchy are patronized by important figures uh, in the ruling family. And it is very difficult to see this trend as an autonomous trend emerging from society. They are backed by figures who, in the royal family, who themselves would like to see Naif sidelined. And therefore, politics in a monarchy like Saudi Arabia is, uh, is, operates at a different level. In the absence of real civil society, of political parties, these kind of trends are actually, uh, in a way, patronized by royalty. So this was gathering momentum. They gathered thousands of supporters on the internet, and also people put their names, not like Facebook or Twitter, where you could text and uh, send messages without uh, uh, your identity being revealed. Uh, there are important figures who signed these two petitions. And obviously, um, uh, immediately, the, the regime responded by blocking access to these sites, uh, but people found ways of uh, reaching and accessing them. Then the second uh, kind of domestic turbulence I would like to describe to you is uh, calls for demonstrations. Let me just mention here 
that Saudi Arabia uh, had a brief experience of demonstrations in the 1950s and 1960s when uh, demonstrations were actually associated with an emerging uh, labor movement in the eastern province of Saudi Arabia, uh, mainly among workers who worked for the oil company Aramco. But after 1953, 1954, 1956, when these demonstrations were gathering momentum, there was a ban on demonstrations. And therefore, we have almost 50 years of uh, absence of um, civil disobedience, um, uh, peaceful demonstrations, all these kind of things that we take for granted here in London and even in some Arab countries are basically uh, not practiced in Saudi Arabia up to the Arab Spring. With the Arab Spring, we find that some Saudis did call for uh, demonstrations, did call for assemblies and uh, um, on a particular day, and it was called uh, the Day of Rage. Now, this Day of Rage was a little bit suspicious, uh, was a little bit ambiguous, because it was a digital Day of Rage, and obviously, we all know and use the internet, and we can figure out that many people could come in, add the numbers, call for it, without actually knowing who is behind it. But in Saudi Arabia, there were identified groups who, are, uh, who actually called for this day of rage on the 11th of March. One such group are the Shia in the eastern province. Uh, another group, Islamists here in London, called for it. And the new Islamist uh, party that emerged during the Arab Spring, called the Islamic Ummah Party, uh, declared that it exists in Saudi Arabia and they had a director and a, a spokesperson who were immediately imprisoned. Uh, but still one member of, of that uh, uh, Ummah party managed to operate and call for this demonstration. There were also youth groups uh, who identified themselves as the free youth of the Arabian Peninsula or the free uh, um, uh, people or people in for, uh, asking for institutions. They called themselves different names and they started mobilizing for that day of rage. Now, before the day of rage, one person uh, appeared, uh, posted a YouTube video of himself calling for the downfall of the regime. And immediately he was in prison. He disappeared and up to the present, we don't know <coughs> where he is. On the 11th of March, a crew from the BBC went to monitor the situation and see what happens on the day of rage. And what they found, almost like an emergency situation. The streets were empty. After Friday prayers, everybody prayed and went to have their siesta. And uh, nobody dared. They saw uh, helicopters hovering in the skies of Riyadh and the, the big cities without actually anybody daring to come out apart from one person, Khaled al-Jahni. Khaled al-Jahni uh, went to the BBC uh, team and identified himself, and he said that this is a big prison, I want to demonstrate, I want the right to say what I want, I want freedom of speech, I've had enough of the situation. And within hours, he also disappeared. Now, oppression doesn't usually uh, act as a deterrent all the time. In the most oppressive regimes, people dare to come out. And we have seen in the Arab Spring how in places like uh, uh, Syria, Egypt, Tunisia, Libya, uh, Yemen, and Bahrain, uh, people do come out regardless of the, uh, the security measures taken by a particular regime. So why didn't Saudi go? 
to demonstrate on that day, I think there was no consensus. Uh, there was no consensus on the, uh, uh, there was a consensus on reforming the regime, but there was no consensus on overthrowing the regime. There were serious uh, problems with uh, regional uh, uh, factions, uh, sectarian tension. The moment the Shia announced that they were going to take part in this demonstration, in fact, they were leading the demonstrations in their own province, in the eastern province, we find that uh, the majority, the Sunni majority, uh, started uh, thinking of these demonstrations as a Shia conspiracy backed by Iran. And this was the language of, this, of the official newspapers in Saudi Arabia and on the internet. I monitored it, and it was uh, uh, so easy to see how uh, what would have been minor protests, not even uh, anything like what happened in Egypt, uh, the state mobilized its security services uh, on the internet, on, in the digital world, before they actually moved to the real world. Uh, where security forces were everywhere. Apparently, more than 10,000 um, personnel were in the on the streets of Riyadh on the 11th of March. Now, in this particular uh, heightened uh, uh, expectation, and I think uh, the regime must have been aware that there was a possibility of people going, uh, otherwise we cannot understand its overreaction. Uh, one would think that the regime was expecting something like the Egyptian revolution to mobilize its forces and, and uh, basically paralyze the cities, the main cities on that particular day. But demonstrations did go ahead in certain parts of Saudi Arabia, uh, in the eastern province. Um, and these uh, demonstrations were actually gathering momentum before the 11th of March as a result of the February, 14th of February uh, pro-democracy movement in Bahrain. Obviously, uh, some Shia connections between Bahrain and Saudi Arabia, remember they uh, have quite a lot of kinship connections and uh, sympathies. Um, and this, the Saudi Shia demonstrated in support of the Bahrainis um, and also against the movement of the Saudi troops under the, uh, um, uh, the GCC um, uh, umbrella to squash the uh, pro-democracy movement in Bahrain. <coughs> so demonstrations were taking place in uh, Awamiya, Qatif, Sehat, and other places. But after the 11th of March, protests began to appear, um, and it was focused on specific campaigns. And this is really new in Saudi Arabia. So for example, women started another campaign to drive. And uh, uh, the campaign was gathering momentum on Facebook, and there were some arrests on the day when it was supposed to take place, on the 17th of June, when women um, were uh, called upon to drive their cars in the main Saudi cities. Uh, between 30 and 40 women went to drive, and there were some arrests. Another uh, small-scale protest was gathering around unemployment issues. Uh, Saudi Arabia is one of the wealthiest countries in the Middle East, and possibly in the world. Uh, at the same time, there are serious unemployment issues. Uh, I've got some figures here that I could mention, but to just give you an indication, the government claims that 10% unemployment does actually exist. But according to other uh, estimates, up to 30, 40% of Saudis are unemployed. 
And the interesting thing is that uh, almost 78% of uh, unemployed women are university graduates, which is really interesting in a country uh, whereas the figure for men is 16%. So 16% of unemployed uh, men have <coughs> uh, uh, university degrees. You can see the difference between the employment figure, the unemployment figure among women graduates and men graduates. The other issue that is uh, very hot is uh, owner, home ownership. Saudi Arabia uh, possibly has 70% of its population that doesn't own its own home. And this is uh, seen by many uh, people working there, activists and uh, others, as uh, 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 something unacceptable because the country is extremely wealthy. <coughs> Corruption is uh, rampant, and according to transnational, uh, 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 sorry, international sources, for example, Transparency International, Saudi Arabia is always one of the highest um, uh, countries <coughs> on, on the scale for corruption. Another hot issue that gathered momentum, people would go to the Ministry of Interior and campaign for the release of political prisoners. And political prisoners are as a hot issue uh, and continue to be a hot issue for the last seven uh, months. Um, women, again, women have been going uh, on the streets <coughs> and gathering uh, near the Ministry of Interior. I'm not talking here about thousands of women, but mainly uh, the relatives of uh, prisoners, political prisoners. Um, and they, these are people who are imprisoned and stay in prison for months and years without <coughs> trial. Now, the, the government has uh, tried to pro portray those prisoners as either terrorists or assisting terrorists or would-be terrorists. And therefore, uh, the, the, the propaganda against the, the issue of these political prisoner has succeeded in isolating it as an issue for the relatives and the families. But women have been going to the streets and asking for uh, their political prisoners to either be released or taken uh, to court. In the eastern province as well, women themselves have been uh, very active in calling for their political prisoners to have an end to this ambiguous situation where people are held in prison for almost 16 years in some cases. And what they have been doing is they had been organizing what is called the Zainabiyat processions for, uh, after the name of Zainab, uh, the sister of Hassan al-Hussein, and uh, holding candles at night. Now, obviously, international media doesn't report on this because they do not have access. And when they do have access, and if they report on it, they are sometimes told to leave the country. And this has happened to two journalists that I know of, working for one of them for the BBC, the other one was for working for Reuters, and it's not a secret. They were told, uh, one of them went to Awamiya in March to report on the uh, demonstrations in, in that part of Saudi Arabia, and uh, he was uh, asked to leave within 72 hours. He had to relocate to Dubai. And the other one was the BBC journalist who also had to, to leave immediately after she reported the arrest and talked to the only demonstrator <coughs> in Riyadh on the 11th of March. 
So this, this, this kind of small-scale mobilization may not, doesn't amount to what we have seen in Egypt or are currently seeing in uh, Yemen and Syria and even in neighboring Bahrain. But for Saudi Arabia, it is uh, uh, the beginning, I think, of the development of this sort of consciousness about uh, how peaceful protests can actually lead to something. Um, and they have seen the results in, in some countries. Um, as probably some of us know, that protest in Saudi Arabia has always taken some violent turns in the past 50 to 70 years. And uh, it is very uh, easy for Saudis, I think, to respond to certain um, uh, demands um, using non-violent uh, means, in a way. By which I mean the tribal rebellions that have taken place, for example, in 1927, uh, uh, demonstrations against uh, certain government policies in the 1960s, such as even, for example, opening the television station uh, in 1964 5. Um, and also 1979, the Mecca mosque siege, when uh, Juhayman al uh, <coughs> occupied the mosque and held some pilgrims as hostages. We see it uh, in, uh, later on in 2003, 2004, 2008, up to then, uh, jihadi violence had been violent. Now, if you ask Saudis why they don't demonstrate, and it is an interesting question, uh, quite a lot of people think that, oh, well, they are fearful. Or some people think that they are happy with the situation. They don't need to demonstrate. And it is an interesting question. Why don't they engage in civil protests like other people? And I have given you example when they are beginning to do exactly that. Uh, I was actually surprised when I asked a Saudi uh, a young uh, man uh, why he doesn't go on demonstration. I know he is an activist and he is a very, very sort of uh, uh, vocal. And he said, well, we don't want to stand in the street and uh, have a security person or the police shoot us. We're not like that. We will have we will be obliged to shoot back. And in a society where arms are readily available, and according to some sources, they say that quite a lot of Saudis are armed, you, they do not want to get into that kind of military engagement. They would not accept uh, humiliation by security forces or the police force. And therefore, they would be ready to engage in violence uh, if they know that they can control the outcome rather than stand passively and be humiliated by security forces. This may be a cultural argument that we could uh, put forward, but it is an interesting argument that uh, came to my attention. Now, facing this kind of upheaval, low-scale sort of confrontations, um, let me look at how the regime responded to what has been going on inside Saudi Arabia. The first, there are three strategies that the regime used and used effectively in order to pause the uh, mobilization and perhaps <coughs> uh, uh, in the short term succeed in containing it. As always, the ruling family uses religion. Religion is actually extremely important. And religion, in the form of the Wahhabi establishment, proved to be one of the main support uh, system, network, discourse, in order to uh, suppress peaceful 
demonstrations. Uh, immediately, the Mufti revived old religious opinions, fatwas, uh, saying that uh, protesting peacefully is un-Islamic. And your duty as a Muslim is to obey your God, obey uh, the prophet and the rulers. And he put all of those three, God, prophet, the rulers, uh, the same, at the same level. And uh, this kind of obedience is compulsory. Uh, and if you uh, violate this uh, ruling, then you are actually uh, uh, causing chaos, fitna, and you will have the, uh, uh, the Islamic punishment of Haraba, which is the punishment dedicated for those who cause chaos in the, in the community. And he was relying on old Sunni tradition uh, of, a of uh, scholars who wanted to maintain the, uh, the, the, the uh, rule and uh, eliminate any kind of dissent. So religion serves that purpose in Saudi Arabia of eliminating any kind of protest. But one would say <coughs> Saudis always have these kind of fatwas, but we know that they don't obey the fatwas. So uh, by having a fatwa doesn't mean that everybody abides by it. It just means that it is there readily available for the, for the regime to use. Then the second uh, position within the strategy of using religion is sectarian tension. The Saudis, I think, are playing a very dangerous game in the Arab region and inside Saudi Arabia. And that is flaming sectarian tension between Sunni and Shia. Uh, uh, in a regime that is undergoing some serious tension within its rank, within its violent rank, we find that they have resorted to the sectarian discourse against the Shia. So any call for reform or any call for uh, demonstration is regarded as a Shia uh, uh, conspiracy against Muslim backed by Iran. And both the religious scholars and the liberal media, for example, Sharq al-Awsat, al-Hayat, all of those who, that are owned by, uh, the, by the Saudi uh, important Saudi princes, in addition to the local press, which I've looked at, Al-Watan, Al-Riyadh, Ukad, and the rest of them, have uh, heightened their sectarian <coughs> discourse against the Shia, and uh, there is a kind of Iran-phobia that is maintained continuously. Uh, so this Iran-phobia uh, demonstrates that we Sunnis, and by the way, I'm, I'm a Sunni, uh, that we are under a threat from the Shia heretics who are going to op take over the eastern province and create chaos among pious Sunnis. This Iran-phobia is served uh, a very important person. Even people who are actually very rational, sensible individuals, I have talked to them and they said, at the moment, we cannot get out of this sectarian discourse. The, the discourse is so powerful and anybody who would ask for national unity, it means that he is not against Iran. So you have to declare your loyalty to the regime, otherwise you are disloyal and you are an agent of Iran. And some intellectuals, political activists, are actually buying this kind of uh, discourse because uh, people have absorbed it and any kind of uh, bridge between Sunnis and Shia in terms of forming a national front or a national trend is, is out of the question at the moment. And we have seen last week what happened in Awamiya when uh, there were serious uh, clashes between uh, the Awamiya Shia 
and the security forces, and 14 people were uh, injured, uh, some of them uh, from the security forces. <coughs> and again, that sectarian uh, discourse is always invoked as a way of explaining the Shia problem. And there is today a Shia problem in Saudi Arabia that uh, the, the government uh, uh, declared, uh, or rather the Minister of Interior, uh, accused the Shia of having their loyalty to Iran and not to Saudi Arabia. And this kind of discourse at the highest level is extremely dangerous. Um, it serves a purpose from the point of view of the, of the regime because it cuts any kind of attempt to build bridges between the two communities, even on political prisoners. The Shia have political prisoners, the Sunnis have political prisoners. There are more probably Sunni political prisoners in Saudi Arabia than the Shia because they are the majority in prisons. But even then, uh, demonstrations in support of the political prisoners um, cannot take place at the same time. So you have the Saudi women in Riyadh demonstrating for their own political prisoners and the Shia doing it in their own region. So um, that, that is extremely uh, dangerous situation. The second regime strategy is obviously in a rentier state, the economic benefits. And here, let me just uh, quote you what a French uh, political philosopher said almost three, four hundred years ago. And this is Etienne de la Boétie. He said, uh, the fools did not realize that they were merely recovering a portion of their own property and that uh, their ruler could not have given them what they were receiving without having first taken it from them. So here we come to the, to the, um, uh, uh, the benefits, the $36 billion package that the king announced in February, March, when he returned from the USA after, uh, um, his, uh, after recovering from surgery there. So the economic benefits were extremely interesting. They came at a time when the population was uh, engaged in this kind of digital mobilization at that stage, and in anticipation, the king announced these benefits. The economic benefits, the way they were distributed is extremely interesting and revealing. Uh, they didn't go to everybody, of course, but they did go to, uh, there was a package for everybody to benefit from, such as hospital <coughs> beds, uh, more um, rewards for, uh, sorry, uh, unemployment benefits for the first time in Saudi Arabia, um, and other uh, small benefits that would uh, actually um, uh, benefit the population. But two important benefits are worth mentioning. The ones that were doing, uh, that they were given to the security forces, um, uh, they, uh, all military personnel were promoted to the, to the rank, to the next rank immediately without performing, without any kind of demonstrating their ability. So everybody was moved one uh, point in the military, security, police rank. And also, there was a promise to expand the military, the security forces, and create 60,000 jobs in that sector alone. Uh, and this is indicative of the increasing militarization of Saudi society, because Saudis um, have found employment in the various security, military, police forces, but it hasn't been the main uh, 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 
uh, field for employment, like, for example, what happened in other Arab countries. For example, Iraq is the classic case where almost everybody, uh, there was a huge army of over a million people. In Saudi Arabia, the security forces, the army, the military is fragmented. And there is a reason why it's fragmented, because it, ha it, has, it is part of the uh, uh, ruling princes and their own militia, basically. So some of the main princes have their own uh, force that is called the military or the navy or the air force or the national guard or the emergency security, but they are loyal to a particular prince. And therefore, we have this multiplicity of services, but not, they are not coordinated. Each one belongs to a particular prince. So to talk about a Saudi national army, it doesn't make sense. And I'm not a specialist in the military, but I can, I can identify which uh, uh, um, military uh, belongs to who and why. And, and sometimes they recruit from different groups uh, within Saudi society, but their loyalty is to the prince that uh, controls them and acts as their head. The second uh, type of benefit went to the religious establishment. And here it is interesting. While we in the West here, uh, here talk about the king's reform and how he's suppressing the uh, religious radicals and the hate preachers. I mean, the, the press, the Western press is full of these kind of statements. That we have the king of the 21st century who is reforming and he is suppressing every single radical element in Saudi society and he's doing it carefully so that not to antagonize the uh, religious uh, groups, uh, but to take them very slowly through uh, a, a thoughtful reform. The religious groups got uh, a handout that is very substantial. There was a promise to increase their rank and file, create new fiqh or jurisprudence centers for them, and also to create more jobs within the religious um, uh, field, uh, such as preachers, uh, teachers of religious studies, and so on. So in a way, these two uh, packages for the military and the religious establishment demonstrate how the regime relies on these two groups in order to secure its survival, basically. Um, so the, these three regime, uh, 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 the third regime strategy was security. And um, that was security as uh, in tight security. Today, uh, while quite a lot of Arabs in Egypt and Tunisia have found new windows uh, to breathe and talk and establish new uh, media, satellite television, newspapers, political parties, the Saudis are regressing. And unfortunately, other Gulf countries are regressing too. So in Saudi Arabia, uh, there is a tighter security uh, over freedom of speech. Um, after we were told that the king allowed the Saudi press to enjoy more freedom. Today, uh, Twitter, if you s post a sentence on Twitter, th this morning, only this morning, um, I was sent uh, a film that documents poverty in Saudi Arabia. And it's in three parts. You could Google it and find it on YouTube. And immediately after that, the person who, a very young person, like some <coughs> of our uh, audience here, uh, posted this video and produced it and went around interviewing very poor families in Riyadh. And he's in prison now. So uh, again, these kind of initiatives uh, by young people who are actually doing these things on their own. There was another film on the plight of political prisoners and their families. 
that is circulating. Uh, but we find that uh, uh, the, the recent um, uh, anti-terrorism law that was uh, introduced uh, almost um, uh, two months ago uh, made uh, the situation worse because now in Saudi Arabia we have three holy figures who are not actually supposed to be criticized or undermined or talked about in any critical way. And that is the king, the crown prince, um, and the Mufti of Saudi Arabia, the highest religious authority. So basically, the, these have become sacred figures, that uh, they are beyond criticism, and you can't talk about them. And if you do, then you could actually face 10 years in prison. And um, Amnesty International um, received a leaked uh, uh, version of this law, and uh, 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 publicize the, the, the fact that these kinds of measures uh, are actually <coughs> counterproductive and may lead to more <coughs> depression. Uh, the number of political prisoners since the Arab Spring has increased. According to the last uh, figure I saw uh, by Human Rights Watch, it was 160 political prisoners in two weeks were rounded, uh, especially in the eastern province. So these security um, uh, measures add to the regime strategies and tightening control over the population where the, uh, uh, any kind of gray area or free uh, space is uh, curbed and contained. Now, the situation um, in the country, as I said earlier, has not reached that moment where there is consensus over political change. The uh, demands are fragmented and they are centered on specific issues. But what we can't actually talk about Saudi Arabia without uh, uh, talking about uh, external forces. Saudi Arabia is not important to Saudis only, but it is important to uh, the West mainly, uh, to China, to Russia, and uh, also to other Arab countries. Um, uh, Remember, Saudi Arabia hosts uh, more than 7 million uh, expatriates. Quite a lot of them come from poor Arab countries, uh, Yemen, Egypt, and other uh, uh, countries in the region. Uh, in addition, obviously, to a, a, a large uh, Western expatriate community. Now, uh, in terms of Western reaction to the Arab Spring, I don't want to go into that, uh, but I think we all know how selective that can be. Uh, uh, and uh, uh, based on pragmatism and realism, uh, as we know. But since the Arab Spring started, we have this sort of uh, think tank lobbyists and some researchers and consultants are, are, are publicizing this idea that we have these nasty Arab republics and we have these soft, kind, paternalistic uh, monarchies. So the Arab world now is seen through this lens of the nasty republics, you know, we've, we've, we've seen some of them, and, uh, but there are these soft, kind, reformist, <coughs> gradually improving uh, monarchies. But we go beyond that and we find that sometimes, sometimes the practices are the same and it's only a matter of degree uh, that uh, distinguishes these republics from the monarchies. Obama, for example, uh, never mentioned Saudi Arabia in several speeches since the Arab Spring. He didn't even object to Saudis moving their troops into Bahrain and squashing the, uh, the uh, pro-democracy movement there. Um, 
we find that there is complete silence on the uh, Saudi situation and perhaps the Saudis have not, as I mentioned, demonstrated in great number to, to merit any kind of attention. But again, it, sometimes it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. What uh, the Saudis fear actually is foreign intervention. The time when the, the regime asked for foreign troops to come to Saudi Arabia, that precipitated a serious crisis inside Saudi Arabia. In the 1990s, when 500,000 American troops moved into Saudi Arabia, uh, uh, that led to some serious tension within society and the crystallization of a strong Islamist movement there. Now, uh, what uh, we can say that uh, the problem with Western position on Saudi Arabia is that it is, has always been hostage to this issue of oil and hostage to the issue of uh, military contracts and investment. And therefore, it is not going to change. Uh, uh, but uh, one thing that has changed and definitely has changed is the world today is no longer a one polar superpower world we are gradually moving towards a multipolar world where the US is not the only superpower deciding events in the Middle East. We have China, we have Russia, uh, and India uh, are all uh, with vested interest in the region and its oil and its security mainly. And therefore, what we are seeing today in terms of uh, some revolutions succeeding, others not succeeding or uh, having serious problems and may regress um, is a result of this world uh, uh, change of in international relations, I think. <coughs> Nobody could claim that uh, there are certain power, the, the old traditional uh, Western superpowers are the main determinant of what is going on on the ground in the Arab world. And in this particular change, therefore, it is interesting to see how in the West there might be a different perspective on Saudi Arabia and the rest of the Gulf countries. But this moves, takes me to the regional dimension, where this uh, competition between three powers are actually working on the ground to uh, either contain the Arab Spring or model it on its own um, uh, image. And these three powers are Saudi Arabia, Turkey, and Iran. Interesting, if we start with Iran, we find that uh, since the Arab, the, the Arab Spring started, there is great enthusiasm for most of this revolution, with the exception of Syria. But more gradually, I think they're coming to terms with the change in Syria. But Iran had its revolution in 1979. And this revolution remained a lonely revolution. Uh, in the Arab world, nobody had an appetite for the uh, wilayat al-faqih, the rule of the jurist. It was an alien concept for the majority of Arabs who are Sunni. Uh, uh, and therefore, Iran was a model that none of the Arabs wanted to emulate because it was seen as a purely Shia product, and it was. Now, Turkey here is more interesting for quite a lot of Arabs. And the Turkish model that is actually based on economic prosperity at the moment. It's, I was in Istanbul a week, two weeks ago, and I had all the figures of the uh, flourishing economic businesses. Apparently, if you look into your kitchen, uh, one out of two fridges are made in Turkey. <laughs> so, uh, and, and in a way, um, 
the Turkish model is seen uh, in the Arab world as something that we could, we Arabs could copy um, in terms of this marriage between Islam and uh, democracy, in terms of recognizing pluralism, in terms of some freedoms, etc. But the, uh, the Turkish model has some problems in Saudi Arabia. Uh, the Turkish model uh, has uh, uh, been the product of a history that is Turkish history. Um, Turkey had a military that was extremely secular. Uh, it had a tradition of constitutionalism that Saudi Arabia doesn't have, uh, and even Egypt, uh, not in the same way. And it had uh, an Islamist movement that transformed itself. Uh, and most importantly, in my opinion, Turkey has this cosmopolitan imperialism that allows Istanbul to become a flourishing uh, uh, modern, in fact, postmodern city. And therefore, the, the Turkish model is not easily copied in places like Saudi Arabia. Perhaps it has a chance in Tunisia, maybe in Egypt, but uh, in Saudi Arabia, I think it is a long way. Uh, so no hope there. <laughs> uh, now, anyway, let me just, uh, I think I need to conclude now. Um, if we're thinking about an Egyptian-style revolution, Saudi Arabia is not going to have it. And there are reasons. First, there is uh, no tradition of civil society, no tradition of uh, feminist movement. Remember, quite a lot of uh, women participated in these revolutions. Uh, Tawakkul Karman is one of the most famous now. Uh, there is um, uh, some cultural um, obstacles in, uh, that I described in terms of uh, lack of history of peaceful protest. But these can change, and we all know that revolutions have long-term sort of causes that ferment, but you only need one event, you know, Bouazizi, or uh, 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 another event in Egypt, and they may erupt. But there are also the danger in Saudi Arabia of some serious fragmentation. Because of the uh, long history of divide and rule in Saudi Arabia, I see that quite a lot of regions are beginning to develop their own separate identities. And one of the petitions that I mentioned actually asked for local <coughs> autonomy uh, and local government. In a way, uh, this centralized Saudi empire, if you like, over the regions is beginning to be resented by people on the periphery. Uh, in the Hejaz, in Asir, uh, in Najran, where there's a, a substantial Ismaili community, and also historically in the eastern province. And so if there is any kind of upheaval in Saudi Arabia, it will turn nasty, and it will turn, actually, uh, divide um, the society along uh, multiple groups or communities. I think the main challenge facing Saudi Arabia today is the problem of succession. And uh, the succession remains open uh, to speculation. Uh, there are some mechanisms to ensure the transfer of power from one group <coughs> to another, but this will have to be tested. And I think they will probably be tested in the near future. Um, and um, to just um, conclude, I would like to uh, say that it may all appear quiet uh, on the Eastern Front, but I think fermenting discontent is there. There are certain economic 
social, political grievances that are erupting uh, at the local level, uh, not in a way comparable to Egypt, but they are there. Uh, and I think in the cons continuous climate of uh, uh, oppression and persistence of secrecy, lack of transparency, I think we, find, we may find that both the state and so sections of society may resort to violence. Um, to, may resort to violence in order to push for certain demands. I think um, in the absence of this peaceful tradition of protest or civil disobedience and the continuous ban on demonstrations, when you ban people from expressing themselves peacefully, <coughs> then you are creating the conditions for them to opt out of peaceful protest and use violence. And uh, because of that, there is a, a big question mark on the future of Saudi Arabia. Now, as long as there's Western support and as long as there's oil and reserves, um, uh, sovereign funds that keep the momentum going, I think uh, in the short term, the problems may have been contained, but in the long term, we may see an intensification of the protests. Thank you. given us really much food for thought, and I'm sure there are many questions. So let's take four questions at a time, and please, since we have just half an hour, let's be as precise and concise as possible. So we'll start with the gentleman here. All right. Um, you mentioned the, uh, I think it was a $30 billion uh, spending plan that was announced in March when King Abdullah returned from uh, Morocco, I think. Um, over the last couple of years, they've announced a number of uh, spending plans, for example, uh, King Abdullah Economic City, and King Abdullah Economic City in, 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 in north of Jeddah. How optimistic are you that these spending plans, which I think amounts to something like $400 billion, will create jobs and diversify the economy. We have a question here. Do we have just one <coughs> microphone? Yeah. Uh, it's a shame. Hello, thank you for this very interesting talk. Um, a few weeks ago, the Saudi king um, announced that uh, in the future women may be allowed to participate in the election procedures. So I would like to know your opinion about this and if, if um, maybe a uh, um, reaction uh, or strategy to suppress the revolution. We have a question at the, the far end, the gentleman. <coughs> One more question, Ali? All right. Thank you very much. Um, my, my question raises on uh, issues of regional tensions. Um, you mentioned about the eastern region, but I wonder if you could perhaps comment on whether there are uh, additional tensions going for southwest, central, northern regions, which might uh, have an impact on the stability of the country. And the final question for the first round is here. Sorry to keep you running. Probably I should step forward and easier. <coughs> mentioned at the beginning the uh, Islamists here in London, were you referring to the reformists or the so-called Islahis? And if so, were they uh, 
made up of majority of Sunni Muslims in Saudi Arabia. Thank you. Yes, uh, the first question on the economic cities. I think the Saudis cr uh, created these industrial uh, economic cities in the 1970s, and they continue to do so. But in a way, they haven't absorbed the, uh, the, the youth. And it, actually, uh, according to some reports, Saudi Arabia has uh, the third highest unemployment figure in the region after Gaza and Iraq which is really interesting. Uh, I think quite a lot of these economic cities are not meant to generate employment, although the, 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 the propaganda says they are. Uh, but we haven't seen um, a, a great um, uh, numbers employed in, in these uh, uh, cities. Just even the university that was created, KAUST, which was uh, created uh, two years ago, and it was the uh, most advanced technology and science university in the country. Most of the staff are uh, foreigners, and the students. The students are foreigners as well. So in a way, we, the, the economy hasn't generated uh, uh, jobs. And uh, in, the, in the 36 billion um, uh, package, most of the jobs are in the public sector. Uh, the government keeps employing Saudis in the public sector, and sometimes uh, they, uh, it is part of this sort of uh, underemployment syndrome that quite a lot of the economists suffer from. Is you create jobs, but there are no functions to be performed in order to absorb the, uh, uh, the number of unemployed graduates. Now, in the second question on the king and woman, Yes, this is an interesting topic, and there was this euphoria again that the reforms, the highest achievement uh, over the last five years is, is appointing, appointing women to an appointed council. I've written about this, and I've written an article whose title was uh, Dictators and Women, a Long Love Story. Uh, it's interesting to see how old aging dictators sometimes reach out to women. Uh, they reach out to women for some reasons. And in the particular Saudi case, I think there is this quest for international legitimacy. Saudis are actually uh, cr uh, craving for, an interna for international legitimacy. They do not like to be criticized in the press. They are very sensitive. They are sensitive because they don't want they don't want uh, politicians in the West to be so embarrassed by their own constituencies when they are aligning themselves with the most obscure regime that is creating problems for Western politicians, that these are our allies. But our allies don't let their women drive. <laughs> and this is particularly interesting in the US. If you go there, you see these civil society women's groups talking about women in Saudi Arabia. I mean, I, I, I'm very skeptical. But they feel embarrassed that their government that is supposed to represent democracy is allied with that. And sometimes politicians in the West have to face their constituencies, and unlike the Saudi king. So international legitimacy <laughs> is important. Uh, uh, also, what is important, why now allow women to be appointed to the Shura Council, is because there is a heightened women's mobilization taking place in Saudi Arabia. And the best thing a regime could do is to co-opt that mobilization and make women work in its own project rather than as an autonomous group. 
and therefore giving them this reward. And finally, gender issues never undermine authoritarian rule. They create controversies in society, debates, and very heated debates in Saudi Arabia, but they never really undermine authoritarian regimes. And it is a safety valve. They please women as uh, constituencies. The Saudi regime is reaching out for, to women for their support against men. Saudis, the Saudi regime has problem with men today because men are causing some trouble there. And therefore, especially the Islamists. And here I come to the, third quest, uh, the fourth question about the Islamists in London. The Islamists in London, as everybody probably knows, it, they consist of both Shia and Sunni. There are some Sunni Shia, and uh, uh, some of them call themselves uh, reforms, like reform movements. Others have other names. So it's a mixture. The third question about the regional tension, yes, the, the Shia issue is the most talked about. But even in places like Najran, uh, where a very small uh, Ismaili community in Saudi Arabia is concentrated, they've had problems. In 2002, um, uh, they mobilized against uh, the local governor, who's a Saudi prince. And they um, uh, forced him forced the king to actually uh, move him and replace him. And in a way, they worry about what they call uh, the changing character of the uh, region, uh, because the Saudis are using Sunni Yemenis to settle in Najran and have the land uh, so that the character of the region changes. So th there are tensions there. And they had been active, the Ismailis, for example, in the south, uh, further in the south. Now, in the Hejaz, it's interesting. In the Hejaz, I can begin to see that there are people who are building bridges with the Shia. <coughs> and I heard uh, lawyers uh, from the Hejaz talking about the plight of the political prisoners in Awamiya recently, just last week. And there are people who are trying to work together, possibly to create a national, a national front where sectarian uh, divide, the sectarian divide is not uh, so severe. But they are fighting against this huge sort of sectarian trend that is supported and sponsored by, by, the, by the regime. Another, another round of four questions. Yeah. <coughs> we have, uh, OK, we'll take, shall we take the one, two, three, four. <coughs> Professor Madavi, you have been a discovery for me, hidden treasure that I didn't know at all until today. I wanted to ask you, Prince Turkey was here last week, and uh, what are your views about uh, this ruling cabal in Saudi Arabia persuading the <coughs> Americans and the Israelis to take action against Iran in the background of this fantastic uh, uh, plot of the assassination of Saudi ambassador in Washington? He asked my question, so. Uh, the Saudi educational system uh, is rather indoctrinating and discourages critical thought. Uh, I, I would like to know if what you think about uh, the recent mobilization, uh, which to me is the first I've seen in my lifetime, 
uh, of where the people uh, picketed Al Marai, the, the, the milk producing company, uh, because of their increase in prices, and they boycotted it and they mobilized. It was very swift and organized, uh, and it was as if they had had experience of that. Uh, I'd like to know if you think that particular uh, paradigm shift in terms of uh, civil society and its uh, its propensity, its power, do you think that will ever that in the near or foreseeable future could be applied to governance issues, or do you think that was uh, or that's too much of a taboo for people to consider using that power towards? Thanks. One more question, and then we have a few words, please, on the current state of rivalry between the Sudayu faction and uh, Abdullah's uh, direct line, please, and particularly in the aftermath of uh, recent moves by Abdullah to centralise power around him, how, uh, how effective those have been. You can really repeat the question for some of us who do not know. And the final question is here, please. Sorry. We have gender representation. <laughs> um, uh, you, you touched very quickly on the issue of succession. Would be grateful if you can explain to us how you see it, uh, uh, what could be the possible scenarios unfolding, <coughs> and what could this imply both for Saudi's relation with the US in particular and implication on the Gulf, uh, given that some countries are already sort of starting to voice some concern about sort of greater uh, <coughs> upper um, sort of uh, hand of Saudi in, 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 in managing foreign policy of the GCC and raising tension in the region. Thanks. Yes, sorry to quote uh, uh, the uh, alleged uh, plot to assassinate the Saudi ambassador in Washington. I think I was amazed how many people in the West, in America itself, uh, cast doubt on the story and how it's going to be uh, followed. Uh, obviously, the Saudis, for them, uh, if you read the press, if you hear all the statements made by Turkey, by uh, his brother Saud, uh, by the uh, uh, main figures in the Saudi government, it is a fait accompli, it's done, the Iranians are behind it. Um, just um, today, actually, I also wrote about it, and I thought that it is all the ingredient of a sort of a Hollywood film with an Iranian-American, uh, the owner of, a Mex of an Iranian restaurant, uh, Adel Ujber, the ambassador, and, and a Mexican drug dealer. <laughs> <laughs> it is extremely interesting, yet we have to see evidence in court. Uh, we can't, but if Iran was actually behind it, it means that they have degenerated to a level uh, that is, you know, which is unlike the Iranian. I, I would be surprised if the Iranian did something like this because they have many other cards that would be less uh, problematic than assassinating the Saudi ambassador in Wash out of all places in Washington. They could do it in Pakistan, they could do it in Afghanistan, they could do it in Thailand. And it is just not going to be uh, such problematic. But Washington is a bit too too far, too complicated. Um, but yes, uh, the Saudis have uh, been pushing, and they have been pushing almost for three, four years. Uh, in the first WikiLeaks uh, that came to people's attention, there was a, a group of Arab leaders <coughs> lobbying in Washington to say that you know you've got to cut the snake's head. Yes. And uh, Washington is holding back. But I think uh, 
the Saudi regime probably thinks that this is yet another strategy they could use to suppress all the mobilization that I talked about. It is so important to have an external enemy, and it's all about Iran. So postpone all your demands to face this uh, uh, threat of Iran. And it's been building, uh, uh, building up over several years. I don't think, to be honest, there is a chance of um, a prolonged military confrontation like the Iran-Iraq war. I think Europe and, the, and America are not in a position to do that. <coughs> um, plus, the multipolar world that I talked about may actually act as a deterrent against a fully-fledged war. Um, so uh, yes, there is this interest, but the Saudis cannot do it uh, on their own. They cannot face Iran on their own, like they couldn't face <coughs> Saddam on their own. And I don't think anything has changed, regardless of the amount of money spent on the military over the last 20 years. Uh, yes, the Saudi mobilization uh, around these kind of specific issues, it started, it started a long time ago, but now it's gathering momentum, because they can actually see how these kind of campaigns do work. And the Arab Spring had given them a real example of how people can come together relying on Twitter and Facebook. But what hinders the Saudi is this lack of uh, um, uh, experience in civil society. They do not form civil society. They cannot form civil society so far. And in a way, they jump to Twitter and Facebook without going that phase where uh, people uh, organize themselves in trade unions, in civil society organization, and campaign. Uh, but they have been uh, campaigning against specific issues. Whether they will move to uh, main political issues, I think it's a matter of time. It will move, because this is a natural progression. Uh, regard and, and in a way, what has speeded it up is this sort of internet. I, I do believe that the internet doesn't create revolutions. I mean, regardless of those who talk about Twitter and Facebook, uh, the Egyptian revolution wasn't caused by Twitter. It helped. It was the means rather than the, the cause. There were some serious structural organization that was on the ground in Egypt, in, in Tunisia. The, Tunisia had the oldest trade union in the Arab world. It was established in 1965. Saudi Arabia doesn't have a trade union. So in a way, you know, let's not get too excited about Twitter. And I love Twitter, but um, it, it has its limitation when you don't have that uh, uh, skill to organize on the ground campaign. But they are learning. They are learning when floods take place in Jeddah, they go in the street. And the interesting thing is women are going. And I think this is extremely interesting in Saudi Arabia. This, uh, the rivalry between the Sudaris and Abdullah. Um, I think you know, uh, quite a long time, almost uh, uh, since uh, the illness of King Fahad in 19, 1995, Saudi Arabia is no longer or cannot be considered as a, uh, an absolute monarchy. It is ruled by circles of power and multiple princes. And King Abdullah uh, was one of those circles, but he wasn't the only circle. And therefore, in today, we have ministries, we have uh, important princes, almost like five, I would say, who actually run Saudi Arabia. And if they are old, as in the first three, the King, the Crown Prince, the Minister of Interior, we find that their sons have taken their place. 
So Abdullah is inherited in his role as the uh, chief of the National Guard by his son. He appointed him before he went to the United States as the, uh, the, the, the uh, chief of the National Guard. Then uh, the Ministry of uh, uh, Defense, then we have the, king, the sons of King uh, of uh, Sultan uh, running the, the various branches. Uh, in the Ministry of Interior, it is Prince uh, Naif and his sons, Hamad bin Naif. Uh, but then you have the regional uh, control also. So the eastern province, where most of the trouble so far had happened, is, is ruled by um, Muhammad ibn Fahd, the son of King Fahd. Uh, then you have uh, Al-Faisal, uh, uh, Khalid al-Faisal in the eastern province, uh, sorry, in the west, in Hijaz. And therefore, today's Arabia is, uh, consists of circles of power rather than a single monarchy. Uh, and this makes it uh, difficult uh, to, uh, uh, to formulate common policies. Uh, there is, in a way, it's a positive and a negative uh, fact that they have this, multi this multiplicity. Because there's always uh, the, the prince that nobody likes, but also there's the prince that is the reformer. And there's the prince who's very, very generous, and the prince who's very mean. And therefore, this pluralism, <laughs> this pluralism creates, uh, <coughs> absorbs some kind of tension in society. If you had one king or one figure, uh, who's responsible for everything, then anger could be directed against this one figure. But this sort of multiplicity, this, these circles of power are extremely important. And I think that some of the Gulf countries are moving towards that model, where you have multiple princes ruling at the same time. Succession scenario, it's very difficult. Uh, from the official Saudi point of view, it is taken for granted um, that uh, um, although they had this committee of allegiance, uh, it is inactive until the king and the countries die. And therefore, after their death, then they, the uh, 33 royals will meet in secrecy and elect a king. And if the king is seriously ill, then they would also meet and uh, uh, decide that he should uh, uh, cease to be king and uh, pro, uh, propose a new king. Now, what will happen? It's very difficult. I think the main problem with the Saudi succession is that uh, it reached the point where it exhausted the horizontal pattern, going from one brother to another. But whether we will have a king who would dare to put it in his own vertical <coughs> line, like the King Abdelaziz, the founder of Saudi Arabia, it's very difficult now because the second generation contestants are multiple and very powerful. Shall we take uh, another round? Right. We'll start so here. Yeah. <laughs> so let's take five questions That's since it's the last round. <laughs> <laughs>
So my question is, considering the sort of the mix in Saudi Arabia and what's happening over the next five years and the high unemployment amongst the economy that isn't modernizing, um, not, nobody's really sure how succession is going to happen. An empowered Wahhabi religious uh, establishment and uh, and Iran, the Shia threat and the Arab revolutions, etc., etc. Is it fair to consider Saudi a ticking time bomb? Okay. One of my students now, <laughs> the privilege. Stratford recently published an article discussing the possibility of Saudi Iranian cooperation in light of the relative American decline in power and influence in the Gulf. And I was just wondering if you could elaborate on the possibility of such an alliance. Uh, the one, the far end, please. Um, for so many Saudi students working in the UK and the US, um, is it possible that they will catch up in terms of building civil society? And does it also mean that the Saudi authorities are observing the students abroad? And we can get that there are some people here responding you now to Saudi authorities about the developments of the Saudi civil society in the world. We'll have a question here, please. The last. What your opinion on uh, Saudi Arabia has been tied to the past two or three years, um, the King Abdullah Institute of Science and Technology, which is supposed to be this MIT of the Middle Eastern world, but in the past seems open, even with all this advanced technology and one of the world's fastest supercomputers. They they have not invited that many students from the Middle East, including Saudi Arabia, and that their supposed goal of creating one of the largest patents in the United States hasn't even even reached that limit. Do you think that the that it's a failed experiment of uh, Saudi princes trying to modernize society, or is it just one of their uh, attempts to diversify the economy from one that's a natural resource based to one that's more intelligent technology based? Yes, if, if uh, I would uh, be in a position to uh, uh, wish for something uh, in Saudi Arabia to happen immediately, I think what we need, first of all, before thinking about anything, is two things. Freedom of speech, freedom of organization. Let society organize itself. Before we call for the reform of the regime or the downfall of the regime, I think these are two important. Uh, and it is extremely dangerous to keep the situation as it is because you, um, authoritarian <coughs> regimes are not known for creating alternatives. And uh, the alternative is sometimes pretty nasty <laughs> if we're not very careful. And without creating, a, without allowing freedom of speech, people to talk and discuss openly and organize themselves. Organize themselves <coughs> along ideas, not regions or tribes or <coughs> sects. And this is the problem that we have. The reason why we have the sectarian problem is because people cannot organize themselves cannot voice anything that is not acceptable to the authorities. And therefore, you, you exaggerate tribal uh, belonging. You exaggerate sectarian belonging. 
because you do not open the public sphere for civil society. And if people want to organize along their tribes, they can. But others may want to organize themselves around different uh, access or different understanding. And therefore, when you open the public space, you allow people to compete in, in the market of ideas. Um, and therefore, we will not have the shock uh, when things go really badly in Saudi Arabia. So these are the most urgent uh, thing. And possibly the third one is the release of political prisoners, which will come if we have freedom of speech. <coughs> now, um, unemployment and all the other problems, yes, they are a ticking bomb. But as I said, this, the strategies I outlined are containing these kind of problems. But for how long, it's very difficult to predict. And uh, it, it can be very sudden, and it could take 10 years. Um, I think at the moment it is unlikely to erupt within the coming you know, short term. Uh, uh, but uh, we see uh, tension fermenting. And therefore, it is really unpredictable. Uh, it depends on what happens in the region, what happens around Saudi Arabia. There's still three uh, close problems, Syria, Bahrain, and Yemen. These are, uh, are, are serious problems for the Saudis. It's not like Libya. Uh, you know, uh, Bahrain is close to home. Yemen is a security issue. There's a long border. And it is not going to go away. Um, uh, the, uh, the report, I'm not sure who asked about a report about Saudi-Iranian cooperation. Uh, I haven't read the report, but it is possible. I think uh, w when uh, countries, groups have a <coughs> political conflict, it is easy to solve a political conflict. But when the conflict becomes ideological and uh, religious, it leads to more complications. And I think the, the, uh, um, the classical case is the Israeli-Palestinian issue. Um, and the more it is talked about in religious terms, the less likely it's going to be resolved from both sides. Um, but political issues, political conflicts get resolved. And uh, people make compromises. And uh, to just remind you, in 1993, uh, during the Khatami, uh, uh, when he was in power, after the death of Khomeini, there was a great rapprochement between Saudi Arabia and Iran. And they managed to have uh, uh, open embassies. And uh, so uh, what is different now, and that is why it is more dangerous, is it's taking a very sectarian uh, stance. And therefore, religious conflicts and religious wars are not easily contained, like political conflicts. You could compromise in politics. But in religious conflicts, it's somehow more difficult. <coughs> uh, the student, uh, the new university, uh, it is an um, impressive university. But it is, uh, in a way, um, like many development projects in Saudi Arabia, uh, if you've been to Saudi Arabia, you know that there are certain uh, walled development. I mean, Aramco itself, the oil company, started as an, a camp, and a camp that is surrounded by a wall. In Saudi Arabia, foreigners stay and live in camps, in, surrounded by a wall. And it's interesting that these camps were actually uh, targeted by jihadis in, 19, in 2003 and 4, and many people died in them. But uh, 
uh, development cannot be uh, in pockets isolated from the rest of the population. And CAFS is just a classical example of how you can create a, a university where men and women mix, where foreign teachers mix with the students, and you wall the university as if to isolate it. And therefore, a university, if <coughs> it doesn't have an open door where people who are interested could come and attend the lecture, is not going to play an incredible role in society. So universities are not walled uh, camps that are for forbidden territory. They have to be open. They, their doors have to be open. Uh, and I'm glad my university, just next door, has an open door policy where you could just walk in um, and uh, attend a lecture if it is a public lecture. So KAST is, is part of this Aramco vision that started as a camp, pushing away undesirable elements in Saudi society uh, and living uh, as an island uh, in, a, in a desert, really. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you. Thank you.